Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Allison grew up in church. She was there whenever the doors are open, as they say. Uh, But this was really no problem for Allison. She loved church. She felt right at home uh, in church and among church folks. Uh, In fact, as a child, Allison was the one who uh, would take her craft from children's church, uh, bring it into the sanctuary after church, and not only show the craft, but teach anyone that would be willing to listen the lesson that she also learned with the craft, right? Uh, She was one of those kids. When she grew up and became a teenager, she was a leader in the youth group. Uh, She sang in the worship band. She read her Bible most days. She prayed every day. And other students in the youth group began to kind of look up to her as an example of what it meant to live a Christian life. And they also came to her for answers to questions that they had because it seemed that Allison had all of the right answers. Well, Allison, uh, she got a little older and kind of toward the end of, of high school began to realize that she wanted to be an engineer. So when the time came, she enrolled in a good college and moved away from home. In college, she was uh, introduced to a whole new world of people and ideas and cultures. Uh, She met people that were raised in different denominations, different religions than she had been raised. She learned concepts and, and ideas about the world that her Sunday school teachers had told her to stay away from. And she was smart and inquisitive, and so exposure to these new people and, and these new ideas led to questions. And at first, she tried to ignore the questions, uh, but she couldn't. And so many of these new ideas actually made sense to her, that despite, at least on the surface, appearing to be in conflict with the faith that she had previously been so certain of. Uh, and so this thing called doubt began to creep in, and certainty began to wane. Now, she had been told growing up that a lack of certainty was a lack of faith, and so wanting to remain faithful to the Jesus that she loved, she, began, she, just, she doubled down on her belief system, every single thing. And so she joined two Bible studies at her church. She took notes feverishly during the sermon. Amen. Uh, and then she met regularly with a Christian mentor, and, and she read all that she could get her hands on. Eventually, though, The questions became too great. And not knowing how to hold on to faith and some of the new ideas or beliefs that she now held, she walked away from Jesus and Christianity. And the truth is, is that Allison's story is really, really common. In fact, and it's a fictional story, uh, but a real story in that it represents the lives of so many. In fact, it may mirror your own story, that uh, your own doubts, your own uncertainty uh, about what to believe about this or that. In the process of of questioning everything you thought that you once knew uh, now has a term in our culture, and the term is deconstruction. 
And so deconstruction is just this, this period, this season of your life that you begin to question everything you thought you knew, all the answers that were neat and tidy and easy kind of all of a sudden become, you become uncertain and doubt begins to creep in. And sometimes, like Allison, it happens when the world gets bigger and you're, kind of ex- you're exposed to people, ideas, and cultures that you hadn't previously been exposed to. But sometimes deconstruction is, is caused by an event in our life, usually a difficult event, that in the struggle to process the difficulty, uh, the questions that had once remained silent could stay silent in no longer, and so they begin to bubble up toward the surface. And so maybe that's you this morning. The, the reality is that regardless of your age, maybe you find yourself with more questions than answers. And what I have found in my own journey of faith is that the, the more answers you get, the more questions come up, right? That it appears to be this kind of constant chasing of, of answers. Well, I've got good news. If you have ever felt completely uncertain about what you believe about God or what you believe about the world, Or even if you have come to a place in your life at some point, or maybe you're there today, where you just feel like faith in God is utterly pointless, the good news is you have a friend in the Scriptures. And it's the author of Ecclesiastes. I want to take a quick tour through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was trying to think, have I ever preached on Ecclesiastes? And and I don't think I have. Uh, And I think you'll find out why. (laughs) It's, uh, it's like, whoa, all right, here we go. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so here we go. Let's, let's, look at, uh, let's, let's take a quick tour. We're going to look at the beginning, and then we'll kind of go to the end, uh, and, and we'll try to begin to make some sense of like what, what might be happening uh, in these Scriptures that could help us. And so I want to read uh, the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says, The words of the teacher... Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then churns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the, place, the, the, to the place where streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been done will be done again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven and what a heavy burden God has laid on men. For I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. 
What is lacking cannot even be counted. So it is in faith that we say, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, Ecclesiastes, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is a bit of a mystery to scholars. Uh, but what we do know is that he's referred to throughout the book as the teacher. Uh, and can we admit, like, just even after the first 15 verses of this book, that the teacher has some real issues with God? <laughs> right? I mean, l- 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 let's just kind of admit that. Uh, let's consider a moment, for a moment, these words that appear in the Holy Scriptures. Everything is meaningless. In fact, let's, let's run a comparison between, between like, um, let's say, like the happy-go-lucky kind of hipster pastor type. Uh, clearly not me. But, but so, so like, here's, here's hipster pastor. God has a purpose for your life, right? Yeah. Here's the author of Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. Okay? Uh, and then you go, like, um, and then you have, like, you have this. God loves you, and life is such a beautiful gift, right? And then the author of Ecclesiastes in verse 13 says, uh, life is basically a heavy burden that God has placed on us. <laughs> okay? Like, this is a pretty dramatic juxtaposition, right? Uh, like, th- this, like here, here's hipster pastor. Like, everything you do has a purpose. Even the most minuscule thing can be used for the glory of God, Right? Here's the author of Ecclesiastes. Your day-to-day activities and tasks get you nowhere and lead nowhere. Uh, they're literally like a chasing after the wind. So, so you kind of have something going on here, right? Uh, for, like all of this kind of trouble. And then, and then he says, the author of Ecclesiastes says, actually, there's nothing that we can do to even change this, Right? He's essentially saying, I've lived a whole bunch of life, I've seen all that there is to see, and, and everything is meaningless, and there's nothing that we can do to change it. The, the crooked stuff can't be straightened, and all that life lacks cannot even be counted, right? You want to talk about deconstruction? This is a full-blown crisis of faith, right? Uh, but that's, not, that's still not even all. He says, all signs point that our effort and our activity have no end, have no reward, and then he uses examples from nature to prove that point. So he says the sun rises and the sun sets, and it does this every single day without rest. And guess what? After all of that work, rising, setting, rising, setting, all of that work, the sun has nothing to show for it. Like the sun doesn't get a vacation. There's no sabbatical. There's no reward. There's no incentive. Uh, there's no paycheck every two weeks for the sun. Like, hey, somebody's saying, hey, thanks a lot for like rising and setting every single day, Right? I mean, you want to talk about bitter. I mean, this dude is bitter. He is cynical, right? And then he says, the wind blows in a meaningless cycle, round and round it goes, without any clear direction, and even the streams that continually flow into the ocean. But guess what? The ocean never fills up, and furthermore, the streams never empty out. (laughs) So all of this effort, all of this activity leads to nothing. It absolutely makes zero difference. This, the teacher says, is what life is like. It's like a cruel joke from God, and then you die. And that's the real issue, I think, for the, for the author of Ecclesiastes. The real issue 
is the death part, right? The, the real issue is, uh, it's like you can do all these things, you can have all this activity, but then you die. So in the end, the accomplishments don't matter, the wealth doesn't matter, everyone dies. And just so we thoroughly understand the total crisis of faith that the author of Ecclesiastes is, is in, verse 11 just like hits home. <laughs> verse 11 no one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come, they won't be remembered by those who follow them. Wow. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I want you to think about this. How many of you know the first name of your great-great-grandfather? Grandpa. Grandpa, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You see what like... But I guess like, all of us are kind of like, ugh, right? No one remembers the former generations, and even those who are yet to come, they will not be remembered by those who follow. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 basically says, everything you do doesn't matter, and then you die and are forgotten. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, I think. By the way, this is just the first chapter. Uh, the teacher goes on like this for 12 more chapters. So if you just want some like light devotional reading, kind of like just before bed to kind of lift your spirits, Ecclesiastes is the place for you, right? This, this, this begs a really central question. Why is this in the Bible? Right? I mean, I don't think that any of us are very encouraged at this point. And, and in fact, the kind of the message of, of hipster pastor is, is, is like a lot more encouraging, right? Uh, you can really sell out a crowd with God loves you and this and that and all that kind of stuff, right? But the author of Ecclesiastes, his church is probably small. <laughs> he probably has a real small church. Um, and, and so, but so, so why is this here? Why is this in the scriptures? Well, in short... I think it's because this gives us a picture of what faith looks like sometimes. You with me? That the life of faith, the, the journey of faith, isn't always just happy, clappy, good times, feeling really certain about everything and confident in everything. It, it just isn't that. And, and to kind of give us a sense that, that the journey of faith doesn't always look like this kind of glorious, this glorious journey into greater levels of certainty, included in our own scriptures is this record of someone in a full-blown crisis of faith. But, but it doesn't just want to show us that. It also wants to teach us something else, which is why I want to go to chapter 12. So if you go to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, click there, you can follow along on the screen as well. In the first four, starting with verse nine, what happens is the voice of the teacher ends and a narrator steps in, right? So what you have in, in chapter 12, verse nine, is you have a switch of who's talking, the, the, a switch in the voice of the scripture. So all throughout, so the narrator introduces it, right? This is, this is who this is from, the teacher. And then you get the voice of the teacher for 12 chapters. 
complaining about the meaninglessness of life. (laughs) And then the narrator steps back in in chapter 12, verse 9. And here's what the narrator has to say. This is, uh, if you have like the NIV, the heading over this might be the conclusion of the matter. (laughs) It says this. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and he searched out and he set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. For of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Wow. I want to point out a few things about the narrator's commentary on 12 chapters of complaining about the meaninglessness of life. Number one, the teacher, the the narrator calls the teacher wise. That is to say, he makes no attempt to dispute or to tame what has been said. That's really important, right? That the narrator makes no attempt to dispute or to tame what has already been said. In fact, he says, what we have just heard is wise. But then he goes on and he does a couple things. First of all, he admits that what we just heard also hurts like nails. That's verse 12. In other words, these words uh, of the teacher don't come easy. They hurt. And if you are in a place in your life where you identify with the words of the teacher, you are in pain. (laughs) You with me? That there's nothing nothing, uh, like easy or, or... Um, attractive about this kind of crisis of faith or this deconstruction or this uncertainty, that that the words of the teacher hurt if you are in a place where you can fully identify with them, right? That if you can read the words of Ecclesiastes and say, yeah, that's right, then chances are you're you're probably in a a pretty uh, difficult place in your life. So So number one, he makes no attempt to dispute or dismiss the words. He admits that it's painful if you hear them and if you can identify with them. But then he also says in verse 12, he says this, be warned of adding anything additional to these words. For endless study wearies the body. It's not exactly clear right up front what that means, but in, in my study what I discovered is something really, really important. And that is that essentially what the narrator is saying is there must be space for doubt and uncertainty, but don't dwell there. Don't live there, right? Uh, Someone sent to me this week a a saying that the past is great to learn from, but we shouldn't live in it. This is really similar, right? That, that That our doubt and uncertainty, there has to be space for that, right? There has to be space for uncertainty in our journey of faith. But we don't need to dwell there. And then the closing, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of everyone. 
The power of Ecclesiastes in this book, as, is, if we take it as a whole, the power of this book is this, that at the end of all the doubt, at the end of all the uncertainty, there is an encouragement to fear God, to revere God, to honor God, and keep his commands. It's almost as the narrator is saying, because that's what a faithful Israelite does. And it's a little bit implicit here, but I want you to see that the teacher who is in full-blown deconstruction, like full-blown crisis of faith. He is as cynical as you can get. And the narrator shows us that faithfulness is continued allegiance to God, not certainty of belief about God. Do you see this? That faithfulness is allegiance to God in the middle of uncertainty about God. That is so important for us to realize. And it's meant to be so freeing. It's meant to show us that we can be radically uncertain about what we believe about God and still be faithful to God. Author uh, Pete Inns, sorry. Author Pete Inns says this. He says, Ecclesiastes is one of the true gems of the Bible. It paints a picture of what faith looks like when all you thought you knew about God and how the world works is ripped from you and when certainty vanishes like vapor. You see, here was the problem. Allison, from our story in the beginning, the, the problem was Allison was, had an inflexible faith. She was told that in, the, in her faith journey, she couldn't be curious about what other people believe or think, that she had to be certain. And so she, so she was raised in an environment that was more about indoctrination than education, <laughs> right? And, and so she had this faith that was inflexible. And here's what happens, here's what happens. Often we are handed a faith system that comes with either explicitly or implicitly a whole set of truths that we are told we must either accept or reject as a packaged deal. You with me? If you want Jesus, here's a whole bunch of other things you have to agree with as well. And then now this is a whole faith package. And you either accept the whole thing as a whole or you reject the whole thing as a whole. It's an inflexible faith. You with me? Some of you were handed an inflexible faith system. So in her youth, of course, she bought into this as a wholesale thing. And that means, what that means is when you accept this whole thing and all the kind of auxiliary truths that come with it, when you accept that, you feel very certain and very confident about the world until something happens, right? You feel very certain until you don't. <laughs> At which point, since you received it as a package deal, often what we think is we have to reject it as a package deal. That, there, that, that there's no movement or, or moldability in our faith. And so Allison was certain, but when her certainty was met with doubt, the whole faith system crumbled. Um, I like to call this a house of cards kind of faith. Uh, where, you know, a house of cards, perfectly balanced, 
Um, I would have a house of cards, but it turns out I can't build a house of cards. So, <laughs> but for pretend for illustration purposes, there is a literal house of cards here and it's all delicately balanced, right? You pull one card out of the whole thing and the entire thing crumbles. And isn't that so true for how many of us approach our life of faith? That we can have all these things, right, stacked around Jesus, things that we feel like we have to believe, Right? And there are some guardrails. It's called the creeds, right? the historic creeds. Everything else is just commentary. <laughs> Everything else is just opinion. right? And so you, you kind of have some guardrails. I'm not saying that this is like just free, free willy-nilly. There are some guardrails. But too often we kind of take all of the positions of this particular tradition or this or that as the whole certain gospel truth, and then you, you have one little doubt, one little crack in the system of the house of cards, you pull that out, even if you just pull it out to look at it and examine it, right? Sometimes we just want to pull this thing out and say, I don't know, let's take a closer look at that. Is that in fact the case? But when we do that, we're at risk of the whole thing crumbling. Does this make sense? Okay, this is a house of cards kind of faith. And what I want to say to you is, is I, want this, I want this to be so hopeful and so encouraging. But I want, I want to share with you that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. That faithfulness is not equal to certainty. And, and I'm hoping that that's going to set some people free, right? That, that faithfulness is not equal to certainty. That the, the degree of your faith is not equal to the degree of your certainty, that you can be unsure about some things but still maintain Jesus. You can, being certain is not the same as being faithful. And, and let me show you this. Because the Bible never talks about faith as certainty. We hear the word faith and often we read the word certainty, right? Or we, we read the word kind of being confident. And usually what we're confident in is not God but what we believe about God. You with me? Usually when we read the word faith in Scripture, we're, we're kind of inserting our own assumptions about that. And if you're anything like me, or if you're anything like what I've seen pastorally in people, then what we're reading into that is kind of certainty or confidence in belief about God rather than in God himself. So let's, uh, let's take another kind of, like, kind of high-level view and, and kind of begin to unpack this a little bit. Because what, what I want to get clear is that the Bible does not talk about faith as certainty. Because the, the Greek word, let's learn some Greek, the Greek word that is often translated faith and or believe. So English faith or English believe is usually one Greek word, pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. One Greek word, pistis. Okay? So... The Greek word pistis is in English, believe, and sometimes also faith. Now, I want you to think about how we use the word believe. We say things like, what do you believe? I don't believe that. I believe, or we say these certain things, like I believe that God exists. I believe that God created the world. And here's the thing. These statements are describing the content of your faith, but not the person of your faith. I believe that, or what do you believe, are questions or statements about the content of your belief. Now, 
I'm a self-professed theology nerd. If I'm in the car by myself, it's usually a theology podcast. The content of our faith is important. Do you hear me? The content of our faith is important and should not be ignored. But we do not have faith in the content of our faith. We have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Does this make sense? So here, here let, me, let me say it this way. The way in which Scripture uses the word pistis is not in terms of what, but whom. Or let me say it this way. Belief and faith are who words, not what words. <laughs> yeah, yeah? You catch it on? Let me say it again. I, let me say it again. Belief and faith are who words, not what words. Okay? Here, so a far better translation of the word pistis uh, is trust or allegiance. Trust or allegiance. Um, this, this sermon was going to be a five-week series of an exploration of the Greek word pistis, but I wasn't real sure how that would go over. Uh, and so we kind of made some adaptations, and this is what you get today. Um, but, so I read this phenomenal book called uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And the whole thing is about trying to get people to understand the Greek word pistis is far better understood as trust or allegiance. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 9, verse 23, a man brings his uh, sick son to Jesus for healing. Jesus replies, all things can be done for the one who believes. To which the father says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Okay, now, here's, if, if belief is a what word, then Jesus is giving the Father a theological content quiz before the healing. You with me? If belief is a, is a what word, then Jesus is giving a, a theological content quiz before the healing. And isn't that how so many of us see how God works? If we pass the test, then God will act on our behalf. If we check all the boxes of what we think, the content of our faith, if we check all the boxes, then God will kind of work on our behalf or we get into heaven, we get on the ticket on the heaven bus, right? So many of us think in terms of, of faith as content, as a what rather than a who, okay? And I want us to kind of switch that thinking around. Because if belief is a who word, then Jesus is asking the Father if he is willing to entrust his sick son to him. Jesus' question is a question of trust. Do you trust me with your son who is sick? To which the Father says, do you hear this? Do you hear this? Yes, I trust you. Or at least I'm trying. Right? It doesn't make any sense. If, if, if belief is a what word, a content word, then the Father's words make no sense. I believe, help me in my unbelief. But you just said you believe. All the boxes are checked. So how can you be helped in your unbelief? But if belief is a who word, then the Father, then it perfectly reflects human experience. Does it not? Lord, I trust you as best I know how. Would you help me trust, would you help me trust you more? Oh, this is, this is, this is, this changes everything. This changes everything. So belief and faith are who words, not what 
words. So our trust is in God, not our beliefs about God. Our faith is in Jesus, not our certainty about Jesus. Okay? How are we doing? This good? This helpful? The, the, the hard work of, of a preacher is sometimes, what do I not say? Okay? I had so much to say, so I'm going to say a little bit more if you'll stick with me. Let's go deeper down the rabbit hole. The first time belief shows up in the scriptures is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This is just after God promises Abraham that he will be the father of a great nation. He will have children that outnumber the stars. And the Bible says that Abraham, do you, do you know what it is? Abraham believed the Lord. This is going to blow your mind, I promise you. The Hebrew word for believe, the Hebrew word for believe is amen, where we get our English word amen. Come on, somebody. In this story, Abraham trusts God to pull off this old man and his barren wife to have a child, right? So when, when it says that he believed the Lord, it says that he amened the Lord. And so get, get this, when we say amen at the end of our prayers, it is not a social cue that the, you can start eating. It's not just a social cue that the prayer is over. Saying amen at the end of your prayer is a declaration of trust, of allegiance. It's a way of saying, God, I have put the matter into your hands and I trust you. Another way of understanding amen is, may it be so, right? I'm giving this away in prayer. Prayer is not just trying to get God to do what you think God ought to do. Prayer is about being properly formed. How are we properly formed? We practice allegiance. The front row is in the spit zone this morning. I'm sorry. Like, good thing, good thing the front row is just a buffer. Um, People are like, let's move, let's just take out the front row. I said, well, then no one will sit in that row, right? So uh, here we go. So faith, faith is not certainty, and doubt is not the enemy of faith. In fact, when doubt comes, and it will, it will, doubt will come. If you're taking faith seriously, if you're actually doing the thing, doubt will come. Okay, so when doubt comes, we can either dig in our heels and say, I know what I know, and I believe what I believe, and that's it. Or when doubt comes, we can place our trust in Jesus, which, by the way, is the very definition of faithfulness, and be curious about how other people, other Christians, have understood that thing or answered that question throughout history. And you can process doubt in small, trusted communities. See, my point in saying that curiosity is greater than certainty is that we need to have a faith that is moldable and that can be fashioned and that can have a listening ear to how other Christians, other people have understood this question. Which is why, can I, I'm going to go to a little tiny soapbox. I'm just going to crawl up there. I won't stay there long, I promise. But I get so frustrated when Christians from a particular tradition feel so certain and so right in what they believe about this or that that they are ready to just push aside any other people in the Christian tradition who see it differently. And I just think, in 2,000 years of rich Christian history, to feel like you've got the perfect expression of Christianity all figured out is so gross 
and prideful. It just looks gross when you wear it. You know what I mean? Like when you wear that level of certainty, it looks gross. It is, it is, it is off-putting because here, here's what happens. So here, let, let me try to put the pieces together. I, I'm down off the soapbox. When doubt comes, we can either dig in our heels or we can place our trust in Jesus and be curious about how other people, other Christians have understood that thing or answered that question throughout history and even in our time right now. Here's the, here's the point. The result of the second is you become a proactive and responsive person of faith. The result of the first is you become reactive, defensive, and motivated by fear. So here's, here's the hopeful message that I want to get across. You don't have to be certain about everything. Yay! <laughs> you don't have to be certain about everything. In fact, you don't even have to be ready to, quote, defend the truth, right? There used to be, like, whole segments of Christianity that, that were, like, in an effort to defend the truth and evangelize the world, we have to be certain about everything. That the most dangerous words are, I don't know. In fact, in, in pastoral training, sometimes you hear things like, pastors can't be uncertain because uncertain, the, the people need to see sort of this steady rock of certainty leading the flock, and so pastors can't say, I don't know. Come on. Come on. So you don't have to be certain about everything. You don't have to be ready to defend the truth. You don't have to have all the answers. And what that means is you can deconstruct and still keep Jesus. Okay, that's what I want you to hear more than anything, is that if you've got some shifting beliefs, you're not sure about that, you're calling that into question, you're pulling that card out to kind of examine it and look at it and see if it has any credence and, and all that kind of stuff, you can do all of that. And in fact, your beliefs can change and you can still keep Jesus. So you can go from the, the earth is young and Genesis is a historical creation record to the earth is billions of years old and Genesis is an ancient poet poem that teaches us all kinds of true things about the world. You can hold either one of those and still keep Jesus. Amen? Come on, amen, amen, right? So you can deconstruct and kill, still keep Jesus. This means that you can come into new information and still maintain allegiance to Christ. This means that your faith can be moldable. Well, several weeks ago, we had three young ladies that were on this platform, graduating from eKids. And I told those three young ladies, stay curious. Because we're usually curious when we're kids. But somewhere along the, the journey of faith, we feel like we can't be curious anymore. That, that's, that, that we have to all of a sudden become certain. Um, but I told those kids to stay curious. And I meant it. Because I've come to see and I've come to believe based on what I see in people, based on what I've experienced in myself, and based on the witness of Scripture, that when it comes to growing in your walk of faith, curiosity is greater than certainty. That, that this kind of open, moldable spirit of trust in Jesus Christ, not the content but trust in the person of God will serve you better 
than walking in this rigid certainty that is inflexible. And I say that from a pastoral heart because can I tell you what? I've seen too many people who have this rigid faith system. This is how things are. This is how God works. This is what the Bible says and that's it. And then they go, then they walk through a struggle that calls one or more of those pieces into question. And because they didn't have a moldable faith that could, that could come in and, and, and examine and be curious and ask questions and have some doubts but still maintain allegiance to Jesus, they throw the whole thing out. And it breaks my heart. And pastorally, or as the people of God, when we see people walking through that, we can say one of two things. I will journey with you in the midst of doubt. Or we can say, how dare you have doubts? You must be certain about what you believe. You must be certain about this particular tradition, this particular thing, this particular interpretation. It's like one of two things. Either buckle down and believe it, I think that just makes things all the more fragile. So I think this message is so important. So important. Throughout my own life, I've seen things change. Things I've thought about things differently now than I did years ago. Months ago, maybe. Sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Like, like my journey in following Christ has led me in directions I've never thought. Um, but I'm still fascinated by Jesus. And I still am utterly captured by a narrative of resurrection. Even when I probably have more questions now than maybe I've ever had, right? Um, and, and I think... I think that has to be okay um, because we can take a book like Ecclesiastes and we can say in faith, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen? All right. Well, let me lead us in a prayer and then to the table for communion. Heavenly Father, today I have done my best to communicate what I feel like is such an important reality in our journey of faith. And I recognize, God, that there's probably a whole host of kind of gut-level reactions or responses to this message. And so I pray, God, that, that you, um, by your Spirit, would be active in this place to translate my words into precisely what we need to hear. That God, if, I, if I've said anything that is helpful or true or encouraging, that you would allow it to echo in people's hearts. And then if I've said anything that isn't in line with what you would want, then God, would you fashion it in such a way that we can hear and understand your word by your Holy Spirit. And God, I also pray today that this would be a word of hope and encouragement to some folks 
who, who maybe over the last few months, year or two, have been going through what has now been called deconstruction, the, the uncertainty, the questioning of everything. And I, I pray, and, and now they're tempted and they're thinking that, that we've got to throw you out if we're not sure about the content of what we believe. But God, may our faith be in you, not in what we believe about you. May our trust, may our allegiance belong singularly to Jesus Christ, not to doctrines about Jesus Christ. Lord, may when we need faith, when we need trust, may we trust wholly in you. So God, be with us in these moments. Uh, May you meet us at the table, solidify this word in our hearts, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.